Welcome to the Master Slave Lifestyle Podcast. Here we'll interview real people living the real Master Slave lifestyle, all consensual and all in different ways. And in this episode... Eroticism sits on this edge between in one arena something delights us and in another arena um, the same thing might disgust us. So much of this is built on the fact that I think BDSM and kink is the, is the next big research area. I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through in my own personal life. This is MasterSlaveLifestyle.com Hello everyone, I'd like to introduce Dr. Richard Sprout and Dr. Anna Randall from the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance, or TASHRA. Hello both of you, thank you for joining me. Very glad to be here, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting us to come here. So the first thing I'd like to do is, could I ask you both to introduce yourselves and actually what TASHRA is? So my name, uh, again, as you said, is um, Anna Randall. Um, I, my pronouns are she and her. And I um, am the executive director of TASHRA, um, an organization that Richard and I founded back in 2012 in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, it, was a, it was an organization we built around the idea of increasing the body of knowledge of, around BDSM and kink. Um, by doing research, and then also to increase the body of knowledge for therapists and healthcare professionals around how to work with um, kink and BDSM with um, health professionals, and to help also um, increase um, awareness for the kink population around some of the health uh, benefits and also some of the health um, risks that they are involved in when they're doing kink activities and so that they could do it more safely and um, more beneficial for them. I'm a sex therapist in the Bay Area, in addition to being a researcher working in this field, and I also train therapists around the world. Richard. Uh, my name is Richard Sprout. I am a developmental psychologist, a research psychologist. Um, I've been in the field now for, uh, oh my God, about 27 years now. Um, <clears throat> I primarily, uh, in my own work, am interested in identity development. And for now the past, oh, I would say seven or eight years, I've been really concentrating on kink identity development, uh, which includes, of course, master-slave uh, identities. And um, I have have a side research project. It's not actually side, it's pretty big. Um, which is the kink identity and sexuality study where it's not necessarily health focused. It's more on <clears throat> life course development, identity development over the lifespan, um, as it relates to, uh, kink and BDSM and leather. Um, but I'm also the research director for Tashra. And so, uh, along with Anna, we are the co-leaders of the International Kink Health Study, uh, which is the third study, each study building on the last. Um, it's the third study around kink and health that we have done since 2012. And uh, each study builds on the next, and now we are at the point where I feel like we've... Uh, uh, have learned a lot, but we're still also at the very beginning of learning about kink and health. 
and uh, feel like this uh, next study is going to be uh, a landmark study when it comes to looking at these issues and these questions. As Anna said, um, we're looking both at health benefits as well as uh, potential risks. So um, when I'm not doing that, I also uh, am I'm the current president of the um, Society for the Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity, which is Division 44 of the American Psychological Association. So that's a lot of LGBTQ uh, research and clinical work and public policy advocacy around those issues. So that's uh, who I am in my professional life. Thank you both very much. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, and this kind of came up to me after I met Anna at a claw, um, what made you so passionate about this subject that you wanted to kind of focus a lot of your career on it because we don't really come across that many people doing research within kink or fetish or master slave and so i was i was fascinated to find out why this was interesting for both of you two yeah um i would say i've always thought that my work um in developmental psychology really is about people's health and well-being. That anything that I'm doing, uh, whether it was with adults and sexual identity development um, or other areas, I have done work with adolescents and children and older adults. Um, so when I'm doing any of that work, I'm always thinking about health and well-being because Ultimately, I want my work to make a difference in the world and help improve people's health and well-being. So um, doing this is uh, fairly central to my sense of, of who I am as a professional. Um, <clears throat> I also um, probably, you know, more closer to uh, 15, 16 years ago, started working in the area of kink research or BDSM studies or whatever we're going to call this, this sort of area. Uh, it has exploded, um, especially since 2015 or so. There are so many scholarly um, examinations of leather kink BDSM. There's a lot of science starting to happen. Um, but of course, Anna and I were doing that before it exploded. So um, we've been witnessing this uh, huge expansion of, of some basic knowledge. And there's still a lot of things we don't know. Um, that list is much, much longer than the list of things we do know. Um, so I'm um, uh, primarily motivated by that, but about 15 years ago, um, it was also um, a desire to integrate my personal life and my professional life. It felt like being able to bring my personal life, um, I've been involved in the leather king community in San Francisco since 1990. 
and bringing those together, um, that personal experience and insight, um, I think adds to what kinds of questions I ask, how I might analyze the data. Um, and that's been very, um, helpful. And, um, I also make sure that in, on any research project, we both have community members as well as, um, scientists and academic researchers who are not leather kink or BDSM in the room so that, um, we are, um, really bringing all sorts of different perspectives to the study, to the questions, to the data. Thank you. And Anna, how about yourself? Why are you passionate about this subject? So I kind of have two ways, kind of two different angles I come at why I'm passionate about it. So the first, the first angle is um, from a kind of professional place, which is um, way back in the day when I was, I, I came into becoming a, a social worker back in the day um, because I had worked in women's health and a big issue for me in women's health was l helping people advocate for their own health. And so back when I was in social work school, I, one of the things I was amazed by was that there was no training around sexuality. And I was working at places like Planned Parenthood and the like. And what I found out was like people didn't know anything about sexuality. And, um, and this was a long time ago when I was in social work school. And I ended up going into public health because I wanted to um, see if there was a way to use social work, which was really about people within their environment, and public health, which was around health in the environment, and put them together. And it's very funny, a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, a month ago or so, I found an old document from back when I was in social work school, which was an HIV manual that I put together for, um, for health providers, which was helping health providers know how to work with women who had HIV. This was written, like, I don't even want to say how long ago it was. Um, it will age, it will date me far too much, but let's just say it was back that was back in the early days of HIV, let's just say. And I found that and I was like, oh my God, I've been working in this area for all these years. So that's kind of number one why I came into this is that sexuality in, and, and advocacy is, and, and personal advocacy has been a huge piece of what I do. The second piece is personal, which is um, I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through in my own personal life which was to think for some 30 years that I was real, there was something really wrong with me and that I was really like, I really thought I was like possessed by the devil because I, I was a good Catholic girl who had kinky thoughts and kinky urges and desires. And I went to therapists who told me there was something really seriously wrong with me. And um, when I went back to do my doctorate, I was really targeted in on understanding kink. So when I went into that, um, that was what I wanted to focus in on. And when I came out and finished my doctorate, Richard and I came into a conversation. And at the time, there was so little research done in the area. And I really wanted to expand the research. And so Richard and I sat down together and he said, hey, by the way, there's another physician I know who's interested in this. And then the rest just became an organic outgrowth of that. And 
so much of this is built on the fact that I think the BDSM and kink is the is the next big research area. This is a, a field of knowledge now. Um, there's lots of argument that this is a field of study. This is no longer just a little niche interest. These, this is this is a, a really legitimate field of study, and that's what's talked about in the literature. That's what's talked about in academics, and and and. Richard and I have really felt for the entire time we've been together that this is, we're at the beginnings of an important field. And this is going to be other people's, maybe not Richard's and mine. Um, there will be people carrying this on for decades and decades to come. Thank you. I, I mean, you both started to talk about the mm-hmm. history a bit. Um, so it would be really interesting. Um, how was, let's say, BDSM or kink seen by the, um, let's say, the mental health field at first? And how is it seen now? And, and I've, I've actually got a story to share as well. Like I've started to do some research on Jungian um, um, kind of male mm-hmm. archetypes. And there's there's a, a book kind of written about that, which I think is based on 1980s lectures. And he had a very certain view on things like bondage or um uh, s and stuff which was that it was part of the shadow and something that must must be worked on and it's, it's you know taken out of the system and i remember reading it going no <laughs> yeah so um for you two you know what was the kind of way that um if someone had fetish or kink or master slave um kind of thoughts it was seen and then how has it changed and why richard do you want to start with that Oh, okay. I'll start. <clears throat> Most of the time, what we do is we go back to the 1880s, uh, 1860s, 1880s, um, when the whole sadism, masochism thing uh, was starting to happen. Um, a, a, a medical doctor, uh, a, a psychiatrist uh, by the name of Kraft Ebbing, um, wrote um, psychopathia sexualis, right? The ways in which, you know, sex can be a disorder or some sort of mental illness. And of course included quite a lot of, um, cases and, and thoughts about how anything that wasn't procreative sex was essentially bad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there's a ton of stuff about homosexuality in it. There's a ton of stuff about, all sorts of things, including um, a fair number of <clears throat> writings and um, cases about sadism and masochism as sexual practices. Um, and in some ways, that was sort of the feeling, the, the viewpoint of um, psychiatry and psychology with some, with some interesting, you know, sometimes... Uh, other thoughts and alternative voices around that being, um, you know, put forth, but often in very ambivalent ways. Um, So this is what was sort of in the air when the American Psychiatric Association decided that, you know, it needed to create a manual that would help psychiatrists um, be on the same page when it comes to thinking about and diagnosing mental illness or mental disorders. And so they just, you know, they had a little section. Um, it was essentially, uh, what was it? Um, and a sexual perversion or something like that as a possible diagnosis. And 
it wasn't very elaborate. It did sort of like, you know, say things like um, homosexuality and pedophilia and sadism and masochism as all just examples of this sexual perversion as a mental illness. Things have gotten much better since then. You know, that was like, what, 1952, mm -hmm. something like that. And uh, since 1952, things have gotten slowly better. But um, uh, one can still find sexual sadism disorder, fetishism disorder, sexual masochism disorder in, uh, in the DSM. Although they now make a distinction that, well, some people do this, but it's not actually an expression of mental illness or mental disorder. But some people do. And it is a mental disorder for them. And now the psychiatrist or the medical professional has to kind of figure out uh, somehow, right, that the uh, person is not suffering from a mental disorder. So that's the way things are right now. It's um, a little, it's definitely better. Uh, but if you compare that to like the history of homosexuality, well, homosexuality has been removed from, you know, this diagnostic manual for now decades completely. Um, you can't find it anywhere in there, but sadism and masochism and fetishism still is in there in some form. And what's interesting about that too, Peter, is that, um, is that there's a way that we kind of, collapse everything together in there. We're putting consensual and non-consensual acts together in the in in these in these manuals. And so we're putting things like pedophilia, which is absolutely illegal and non-consensual act, with something that may be very consensual and um, maybe um, fully informed. And so the challenge right now that we have with these 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 diagnostic criteria is that um, they're not well informed by what's practice out there. And then what's happening is that people who really are coming from a place of trying to look into some sort of um, underlying, they may come from a, a, a practice or a, a, uh, um, a theory that has a very negative perspective on, on these practices. And, um, and then just taking that practice or the, a personal bias and putting that onto the, the client or the patient. And so what happens, what we see and is what, what, I, what I term and what other people term is what's called iatrogenic harm, which is that people go to somebody for help and are actually harmed by the help itself. So um, what happens is that somebody goes and they meet somebody who's pretty uptight or thinks that what they're doing is wrong personally, but is not very informed by the research or, or science and says, oh my God, how could you do that? That's just abuse or that's just self-harm. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing we know, somebody's been branded as, you know, some sort of, um, you know, this is self-harming behavior or they have some sort of other mental illness. And it happens, unfortunately. And that's part of why we do what we do at Tashra and other people are doing it too, which is to try and train professionals to understand better what it is that people are doing and to understand the, the fundamentals of consent and the fundamentals of how individuals learn. You know, we all know that within the kink communities at large, 
so much of education is so, so emphasized. You don't just pick up a single tail and beat somebody with a single tail. You need to know what you're doing, right? And so, yes, yes, it can be abusive. Somebody just picks up a single tail and starts walloping somebody with it because it's just not informed behavior, right? Um, And I think that's where so much of the mess comes in with um, the psychological impact or the psychological harm that gets done is by very uninformed individuals who just bring their own biases or poor training in. So, so let's say that I want you to see a therapist and I've got all of these mm-hmm. kind of feelings or things about kink or fetish or master slave as well. What would you recommend that person does in order to find the right therapist? Ask questions. Find out what the, what the therapist knows about kink. Ask the therapist, what do you know about kink? You know, are you, have you, have you ever taken any classes in it? What are your perspectives on, on, do you know what consent means? One of the things in our very first study that we did, um, one of the, one of the big things that we did, um, our very first study was qualitative. We had, we did interviews, very long interviews actually with individuals. And what we found out is that most people were, what they complained about is having to educate therapists on their dime. So in other words, I have to pay you for the first three sessions to educate you about what BDSM and kink is. And what we found is that some therapists in, in exchange would say, I'll, you know, I'll cut my rate or I'll, I'll actually do a free therapy, therapy session because that would help them. What we're seeing in the field right now is a big upswing in people who are either kinked themselves who are going or becoming therapists or individuals who are becoming more knowledgeable because we have seen, you know, kink is becoming much more mainstream as far as, you know, Unfortunately and fortunately for Fifty Shades of Grey, right? (laughs) The book. (laughs) Did open up um, some awareness of the area, though not necessarily um, well-informed. It did open, it did um, add to the kind of common knowledge about this. So that's one thing is just to ask questions, get informed, and also look for people who are advertising as kink therapist, and then ask more questions. Because just because somebody says they're kink, they're, you know, kink friendly, or they're kink knowledgeable, doesn't necessarily mean if you're in a, you know, in a um, master slave relationship, or you're in a intense or complicated leather family, just because you're kink informed, you may not understand the dynamics of what a family, what a leather family goes through, or what a complex poly um, you know, non-monogamous um, uh, open relationship um, may look like, and how to navigate that in in uh, or what happens in a master-slave relationship around dynamics and um, and protocol. Um, so you may have to be very savvy about how you interview people. But the important thing is to go ahead and interview people. I mean, interview your therapist and to be upfront. Uh, we have found in our work that. Um, some people are very good at advocating for themselves when they're looking for a therapist or a new doctor. Uh, but a lot of people are not. Um, we still find that in our last, um, uh, we did a kink health survey back in 2016. And when we look at that data, we had, you know, almost 2000 people 
participate in it, who were kink identified. And about half of the people never came out to their therapist or never came out to their doctor um, about their involvement in kink. And for some of them, it was a fear of like having to um, be rejected or to sort of be attacked for uh, being involved in kink. So um, while there are some people who can, you know, who do advocate for themselves and they ask these questions, uh, how many, how many kinky clients have you worked with? Uh, do you have any training? as we were saying uh, before um, around this specifically, because uh, most of the time there are a lot of uh, therapists and doctors out there who get no training in sexuality, let alone in alternative sexualities like leather kink BDSM. So it, I think that um, um, asking that um, and asking, you know, what kind of training have you had around this is perfectly fine uh, to ask that. Um, some people get a little nervous about doing that because it sounds like, am I challenging them or questioning them, you know, right from the very start? Is that, you know, um, an appropriate thing to do? And both Anna and I would say it is very appropriate. <laughs> you need to get the quality care that you deserve. So, um, those are definitely coming out and, and asking those questions um, really helps. I, I really like that. Like I've seen two therapists for, let's say, a long period of time, one when I was in London and one that I'm currently seeing here in Berlin. And before that first one, someone gave me some really good advice, which was like, you want to interview three different therapists and figure out which one you can work with the best. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like who, you know, it's almost an intuitive thing, but does your inner child, your inner soul feel that you could open up and speak with this person? Mm -hmm. um, so I've always kind of like gone, okay, I want to see more than one and then make a decision about who is best. And I'm always very upfront in that first one. These are the topics, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, I want to be a 24 seven slave. This is a, a key part of my life. I don't want to be shamed on this or told that this is wrong, you know, and I kind of, um, very strong in asking those things at first mm -hmm. you know and normally when I'm first seeing the therapist I'm not in my best most confident place either so just in case someone's oh well I can't do that it's like it's fine to ask even if you're not at your best <laughs> or like for my first time uh, well actually for my first and second that I was suffering from um, depression <laughs> as well you know that it's fine to ask these questions it's interesting you say that Philip because um this is where the skills we get in BDSM can be so helpful, right? We're used to talking about sex, right? We're, you know, this is what we build in this field. You know, it's like when we're, when we're kinky, we learn to talk about these things. So this is the stuff when we're interviewing a new play partner, right? We interview a new play partner. So think about interviewing your therapist like you interview a new play partner, right? So think about it as a negotiation similar to what's going on when you interview a new play partner. So think about it as consent. Think about it as, you know, what are the things you want to know about them? What do they need to know about you? 
right? And and maybe that's a way to think about this is that, you know, when I did, when I had my first play partner, you know, like, you know, back in you know, 25 years ago, when I was formally coming into the community, right? Um, I, you know, that's what I did. I, that's what, you know, I called up three recommendations that the person back in the day, mm-hmm. they actually called people, right? Um, I called three recommendations of, that this person gave me, right? To say, and they were like, oh my God, this person is such a great person, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's helpful. Now you may not always, the therapist may not give you somebody to call, but you can certainly ask them, you know, what would somebody say about you as a therapist? You know, things like that. So, you know, it's all, or ask around in the community, you know, who are good therapists that people know of. I think, I think that the other thing, um, like I, I had a friend who, you know, has had a master for like 15 years and when he was seeing a therapist, he never told them about it and it almost turned into its own power play he didn't want to share stuff you know and I I I kind of said you know for me I kind of say this straight away so it's not a power play because these are the things I need to talk about um but I I also try to be a bit funny as well and I I don't know if this this will help in the listeners but sometimes we can feel shame about wanting to talk about these um, desires but quite often you're going to be one of the more interesting people to have a therapy session with from the therapist's point of view there was once I was considering going to someone's dungeon for a month and the therapist was like well if you were sitting in my chair what would you be thinking at this time and um not very helpfully for the session but I was like well I probably don't need to write notes about this session I'm going to remember this next week (laughs) yes very true um, so uh, uh, the other part of this question, so let's say you have seen a therapist or you are seeing a therapist and they don't agree mm-hmm. with BDSM or they're shaming you. What advice would you give at this point? Walk away. That's Walk right. Away. <laughs> um, this person is not going to, if they're not going to recognize or want to work with, right, this part of you, um, uh, there's just like, not only are you going to subject yourself to constant, like, you know, insults and rejection, sometimes very subtle, right? Uh, which is just going to increase uh, the stress, but it's also going to be a lot of lost opportunity, right? You could be working with someone who's more than willing and happy to see what place your leather kink BDSM has in your life, um, the possible um, uh, strengths that might come from that, the possible benefits that might come from that. Um, Like if you're working with depression, you know, the, the person who's more rejecting will basically keep kind of coming back to, well, you're depressed because you're doing all this kink stuff and it's just not good for you. So stop doing that and your depression might get better. Uh, They may be giving those messages, whereas somebody who's more kink-informed would say, is there a way that we can use your kink or BDSM to address your depression? Um, Mm -hmm. Is there, um, how do you feel after a particular scene? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Is there a way in which um, we can address the, the difficulties and the challenges of, of doing kink when you're not feeling, you know, very good. Um, 
So I, 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 th that is a missed opportunity if you stay with or stick with a therapist who just doesn't understand and in fact harbors negative attitudes, sometimes very explicit negative attitudes right, about kink. So Anna, Anna's right. Just really, I would say walk away. There are more open um, kink informed therapists out there that you could find. Uh, now, I, I recognize that not everybody's in a, a situation. You know, we have colleagues who work in rural areas, you know, therapists who work in rural areas who are, you know, very kink informed. And often they're the only ones in like hundreds of miles. And, and so we do recognize that sometimes people are in that situation too. Is is there now more therapy happening online? Um, like because of COVID, it's, it's had to happen. But has this also opened the possibilities that, let's say, I am in one country, I can now find a kink therapist in another country that would see me, or are there still limitations around this? There's very much limitations, and it, you know, this is the big challenge I think we're all having around the around countries and around worlds, around licensing issues and cross border. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the next in the near future about this? I really don't know, because um, there are there are providers who are willing to work across um, across national boundaries or even state boundaries. But many are um, constrained and um, and working within their within their licensing boundaries. Um, and other people, um, some people have um, you know opted to even go out, you know, have opted to even drop their licenses in order to go into something, you know, that might be called coaching or something like that. I mean, I think that's a personal decision that people have to make, but it's also important for, um, for you, if you're um, a patient or a, a, a client, looking at, you know, making sure that the person that you're working with is qualified to be working with you around the issues that you're dealing with. If you have significant mental health issues, um, you have a concurring, you know, you have some sort of concurring issue that is, is significant. Um, you want to make sure that the person that you're working with, I worked with a, a, someone I knew who was a coach, who's a, a business executive coach, who their client was bipolar. And this person contacted me for some advice and was saying to me, well, this person, they say they have bipolar disorder and started explaining what this person was doing. And I realized this person was completely out of their wheelhouse and practicing well beyond their ability to be helping as an executive coach. And so it's important if somebody is doing something like working with a coach, make sure that they are equipped to be working with the kind of health issue they have and that it's safe um, for them um, to be doing this sort of work. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen in the next few years, Philip, around these issues around cross-boundary. Um, it's hard to say. With telehealth is way beyond these um, the 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 um, bureaucratic issues um, regarding this. And there's also an issue with COVID that we have a significant need for mental health um, around the world right now, and we don't always have enough providers. Um, yeah. And here in the states, it's really a crisis. I'm sure it's a crisis other places as well. Um, and so that may in it be an impediment for people leaving a therapist, or they may be discovering a part of themselves and they have a long-term therapist and the therapist may have a bias. And what do you do then? 
because you may just start discovering this part of yourself and your therapist who's known you for years says, oh, well, because of your mental health issues, I don't think this is good for you to do. And that may end up being a bit of a challenge for somebody and, you know, saying to the therapist, but this is important to me. Can we talk about, you know, how can I explore this? I know you're worried about my depression or my bipolar disorder or my, you know, um, going back to addictive behavior. I was a meth, you know, had a meth problem. How can we work on this so that you're, you're comfortable with me exploring and also, um, I know you're worried about me falling back into my depression or falling back into my, into my meth habit. Um, how can we work together on this so that I can still explore and for you not to go into a place of starting to kind of caretake me? It's strange. Like I've been having this discussion with my therapist at the moment that we've been doing a lot of work on other things, but sometime over this year I'll actually change therapist because I want to focus more on transpersonal therapy mm -hmm. and he doesn't have the experience for that mm -hmm. you know but we've been having this chat and there's been a question more about when we're going to do it mm -hmm. you know and um, you know he is fine with that as well because he understands why this is important and it's sort of my next stage of personal development and he can't really help me with it mm -hmm. yeah the, the 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 other thing I wanted to kind of mention. So, if you have been to a therapist who has, let's say, shamed you, mm -hmm. it can be quite hard to open up to someone else about it. Like I've had that happen for not a fetish reason, but but another reason in in um, therapy. And so, one of the things that I did, I actually talked about the fear of talking about it. Um, is that something you would recommend as an approach or can you recommend something better from your ex from your expertise? Well, we certainly have seen that pattern in our data. Um, when we look very carefully at what leads some people to like share or disclose or bring it up, um, there's nothing, you know, that dampens that as past, experiences of being sort of shamed or feeling somehow in some way um, uh, embarrassed, uh, made to feel embarrassed mm -hmm. by a therapist. Um, so I, I certainly have heard that story before. Um, I don't know. My immediate reaction is just to, again, kind of like, do you, do you need to find somebody else to work with kind of thing? It's interesting. It's interesting because shame is an interesting, um, it's, a, it's an interesting um, emotion because, you know, um, eroticism sits on this edge between in one arena, something delights us. And in another arena, um, the same thing might disgust us, right. Or, or, or um, cause us great humiliation, right. You know, humiliation play is a perfect example of that, right? You know, um, and so one of the things about shame is that, you know, many of us in BDSM are, are used to like something like humiliation play and, you know, that can be hot for us, right? But obviously being shamed by your therapist is not hot, right? And so um, when we're talking about this idea of being shamed by a therapist, um, and if you're, if you're continuing to work with that same therapist who you've been shamed by, right, 
it's really an important conversation to have with a therapist about what shame means. And to be able, you can use that even with your same therapist to talk about what it was like to feel shamed by your therapist and to bring it up. And one of the things I often say with my clients is to say, if I say something that upsets you, please bring that back into the room. I want you to tell me if I said something that upset you or you felt shamed by, because that's when the real work happens in therapy is when we come up against something together where I've done something that hurt you or that has happened, not that I want to run around doing that, you know, but it, it, that's the place where the real work can happen. And when often when clients um, instead choose to walk out the door, they may also miss an opportunity to um, have that interaction with the therapist that can actually help them work through some shame because even bringing it up may bring up so much shame that they're afraid to bring it up. So they just walk out. Right. And sometimes their therapist might surprise them because the therapist might be able to handle it better than they think. Right. And they might not. And then that may tell them, then it's time to walk. Right. I really like that because I think that my first therapist, this was the issue I kind of had was that when there was an issue, he couldn't really respond well to it and I should have maybe left before I I actually did Mm -hmm. but with the therapist I have now when we started to pick up on some of the same subjects I was like I'm really resisting this and I think it's because of this issue how can we deal with this how can you make sure that I can feel safe and such a thing won't happen again Mm -hmm. and we were then able Mm -hmm. to create something and what was really good with, with this was that this you know, later on created a couple of epiphanies for me. Mm-hmm. I was able to process some grief. Then I stopped taking my antidepressants and it just created this amazing kind of group of um, amazing good events because we were able to have the sort of discussion that you're talking about, Anna. Mm-hmm. And think about that in your own, in a DS dynamic or in an MS dynamic. Think about how that can be also translated, that if you can go through that with your therapist, then in a in a in a in a authority transfer relationship, you can go back into that authority transfer relationship and use that same skill or that same experience to be able to possibly bring up a difficult topic with your with your submissive or your dominant to be able to say, "Hey, this happened. Can we talk about it out of scene?" Right? Because you have yes. that experience, you're you're, you're practicing because that's so much of what therapy is is practice. It's the microcosm of the macrocosm. I love that term. So, so um, coming coming back to let's say the research and how things have de- developed. So, you mentioned in twenty fifteen that things have suddenly really started to kind of um, grow, and a lot lots more people are kind of doing this. So, so why has this suddenly turned into a hot topic? Why are suddenly people so interested in this? Well, I think definitely there's um, uh, it has been I think there are probably two things going on. One is there's just more talk about it, right uh, in the general you know popular culture. Um, there's and some of that is really um, uh, spurred on by, the uh, explosion around social media, uh, kink talk, <laughs> right? TikTok, kink talk. 
um, a whole bunch of other things. We have one of the things we have really noted, um, uh, and what we try to do is to reach out to all of the sort of online community educators that have created, um, you know, channels and uh, platforms and other things which um, uh, create space to talk about these issues in a way that is much more accessible than it ever was before. So there's a, a large popular cultural change which has um, taken a lot of the stigma out. Uh, but within uh, within like science and scholarship, um, there's also been a lot of people. Uh, you know, we used to get told all the time that, well, if you're going to do kink research, you really should wait until you get tenure, or you should wait until you know later in your career. Don't start off this way; that will kill your career. Um, uh, and people don't get told that as much as they used to. And in fact, there has been uh, a growing level of, maybe not, I wouldn't say understanding completely, but at least some sort of openness to that this might be a legitimate line of, of research. Um, but I think it's become a legitimate line of research because now people are starting to realize just how many people are kinky, right? <laughs> or how many people have have um, at, at least you know tried it, or at least have fantasies. You know, a lot of the research on just fantasies finds that over 60 percent of the population has some of these fantasies, even if they never really do anything about it. Well, you can't just write off sixty percent of the population, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, although some people will try anyway, the, so I think that that's, that's part of what's going on is both, um, within the professions, it's less stigmatized in popular culture. It's, uh, much more seen. Um, it is, uh, talked about more, um, even if in both places, the information is not always correct or helpful, but at least it's being talked about. So I think that that's part of it. Well, I have lots of, you know, there, there's lots of theory about that or lots of kind of thoughts I have about it. Um, I, I do think the, the, I do think like you said, Richard, that social media has played a big part in this in that, um, sex education, um, at least in the United States, and I and I definitely think in some parts of the world, um, is completely unavailable. You know, I have a large population that I work with who are from Southeast Asia and Asia in particular, where there's no sex education. They don't have zero, right? And so social media has allowed people to get sex education who've never gotten it before. And so, um, so the social media really, you know, levels that out. And so I do think that it, we're talking about sex more than we ever have. And so with that, it, there comes some interest and some, um, 
uh, normalizing of sexual conversations, which in the past couldn't happen. So even at the university level, when people are starting to do research, it's it's easier for someone to talk about wanting to do some research on on sexual content and. And so instead of just doing romance, which was what the sort of research that was done in the past or dating, now we can actually talk about sexual behaviors, right? And so um, I think that's where a lot of this is coming from. And, and since so much research is done at the academic level, um, because there's no funding for research on sex, you know, um, we're in the middle of a kind of interesting conversation around how to have more governmental support for research. And, um, and that's a bit of a longer haul. But um, since so much comes out of university, if universities are supportive of people doing research in BDSM and kink, um, I think that's why a lot of this is starting to show up in the research, I mean, show up in the, in the literature, is because it's coming out of university settings where there's, they don't need the money to do the research because it's funded through the university. And so that is why, and universities are less um, squicked about research um, in this area than they used to be. I, one of our colleagues back when I first met her, maybe 12, 14 years ago, was kicked out of a university she was teaching at because she was doing research on poly, on polyamory. Oh, and, and she was kicked out of the university for that. So things have come a long way, right? And I, I don't know if she was tenured at the time, but she had long experience in teaching. So um, we've come a long way now that we actually have some labs working out of universities now. And you have labs in the UK even too. So in the, in the UK and also other parts of Europe as well. So um, I think that that's it. I think that there's, it's coming as a groundswell out of the university academics and we'll see what happens um, as, as, as that grows. Thank you. And then let's say in terms of um, the research, so you and um, to have mentioned that you've already done two studies and you've now got a third that you're doing. So, so what sort of things have them you found out? And is there anything specific about power dynamics or master-slave relationships you can talk about? Uh, there's, an, <laughs> there's a number of things, I think, about that, in particular master-slave dynamics or... Um, relationships uh, like that, whether they use that language or not. Um, it, there's a couple of, I mean, what pops into my mind is, um, you know, we can go back into our 2016 kink survey. We've got um, a number of uh, questions uh, related to, um, again, this kind of uh, dynamic and this kind of identity in the kink current international kink health study. Um, Master-slave relationships, um, I kind of feel, and we might have some data to support that, is generally a little bit more stigmatized, even within the kink community, than uh, other, right, other parts of the kink community or leather community. Um, where a lot of people just don't quite understand why would anybody do that? Or um, it's fun. It's fun in the, you know, in the context of the bedroom or the scene, but why are you building your life around it? Yeah. In particular, 24/7. Yeah. In particular, 24 sevens. Right. I, I've had that. And that's one of the reasons for master slave lifestyle, you know, to, to try and yes. make this. Yes. So, um, uh, so I think that we, you know, 
we have a, a, some information that that's what's going on and that people are facing even more, you know, sort of uh, within the community stigma and discrimination because mm -hmm. of this. And so we definitely have that on our radar and we're trying to understand it. Um, and uh, it is driving some uh, new research efforts on our part to understand this specifically. Um, I also note that for clinicians, uh, therapists and counselors, often it's like, you know, if somebody wants to get spanked, right? If somebody wants to get tied up, that seems to be okay, uh, at least a little bit more acceptable. But if somebody actually wants to, um, uh, again, build a life around and have as a central identity, their identity as master or slave, there, th that might be some sort of mental problem that we have to address. Like there's some sort of personality issue we have to look at. And so I, I see that um, even for some therapists, right, who are at least kink friendly, when it comes to master and slave, they become a little bit um, confused and perhaps a little bit more negative or worried worried about their clients. So um, I think we really want to look at that um, a bit more closely and to understand uh, what it is about these relationships mm -hmm. that um, helps people, that actually increases mm -hmm. their health and well-being. Because uh, mm -hmm. we, you know, we hear that all the time in the community. So that's possible too. So, um, we're, we're going to be looking at that um, a lot more closely because of that, because um, I think there are higher or more mm -hmm. barriers mm -hmm. to good quality care for people who identify as master and slave. Um, so uh, there's at least that. I think um, we certainly know that there are uh, there's a huge range of diversity about how people do, right? These mm -hmm. authority transfer, authority exchange, uh, power exchange relationships. Yesterday. Um, we were actually just at a meeting yes, was it yesterday trying to figure out, okay, if we were to study this, what is it that actually makes master-slave mm -hmm. relationships different from like daddy boy or daddy girl or whatever? Um what do we ask that might capture that? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm still like trying to puzzle that through. Um, and so the more that we can learn about it and the more the input we get from the master-slave community, uh, the better the research questions will be. And the other, thing, the other thing about this, Philip, is that also so much of the research has been done on white middle-class people. And so we have a very um, limited um, amount of information on, um, on a more diverse population. Um, and um, whether that's, you know, number one, people around the world, number two, racial diversity, number three, economic diversity, right, um, uh, cultural diversity. Um, and part of the reason we're doing the research we're doing and we're doing it as an international study is we want to know more about how kink differs around the world. 
um, and also how people, how their experience of, of being kinky and their health and their experiences of stigma, their experiences of, the, of power dynamics may alter based on cultural differences, based on racial differences, um, based on religious differences. We have a colleague who's doing a study right now on Muslims in the United States who are kinky. You know, um, and so, you know, there there's so much to know that we this, because there's so little research done. Um, and so um, that's that's part of what drives us here is that the, the information we have is limited and limited by the populations that we've been able to access. And um, and so that's what's driving so much of this is that the preliminary research we did out of 2016 gave us snippets of information, but often gave us information that's incomplete because it was a small study. And we also could only ask some questions, but we didn't get full questions. And some questions we were like, oh, we should have asked this, this, and this in addition, right? So we got some information that was really great. And we got some information that was a little disturbing or concerning to us we found out that bondage was one of the things that people get the most injured at. Um, that's what we saw in our data is that bondage, yeah, the bondage, you know, is the thing we really need to be talking to people about is safety and how to do bondage better because, you know, getting nerve damage or dislocating, um, um, you know, dislocating a shoulder, um, you know, from um, just nerve damage was the big one that we saw, right? And sometimes it was just temporary and sometimes it was permanent from just tying somebody up and losing feeling in a finger, right? Um, and so those are those were important health issues to, to know about, right? Because that's going to inform how we train the community and how we inform the community about what needs to happen at a, at a community level um, with health educators and sex educators and kink educators. And it also helps health, health providers like physicians and whatever know what they're looking at when they're seeing, you know, things. The good news is most of the injuries that we saw aren't life-threatening. Um, so the good news is, for the most part, people don't die from kinky stuff, right? Very rare. Um, but, and the injuries that happen are, for the most part, not serious. But when they are serious, they're serious. Very much. A rupture from a fisting can be very serious. Right. Um, a, a, a vaginal, um, you know, from vaginal fisting too can be very serious. Right? You know, vaginas are pretty used to some heavy, heavy duty lifting. <laughs> right. Um, but that's the stuff that we really want to, you know, we want to elaborate on. Right. We know that kinky people may experience a lot of stress and, and trans folk um, definitely are a population in the kink community that are already at risk, right? Because of all that they deal with um, growing up as trans. So we want to make sure that, you know, kink, their kink activities are um, helpful to them and not, you know, re-traumatizing to them as well. So with what you said, um, do you want to talk about the kink health survey that you have out at in the moment and what this is and how someone could take part if they're interested in it? Well, the easiest thing to do is to go to our website for the study, which is kinkhealth.org, O-R-G. 
Um, there you will find some more information about the study, a link to um, our questionnaire to see whether you, um, you know, uh, can enroll in the study, whether you are the kind of person that we're looking for for the study. Um, it's very simple. Yeah, it, it's, it is, you know, uh, pretty simple. But, and then if, if uh, you then get contacted um, by our team and um, uh, if you do qualify for the study, then you're sent an informed consent form that goes through everything, all of your rights and uh, what's going to happen in the study. And then, um, and then we start. And this is one of the things that I'm really proud about about this study is that um, unlike almost, well, I, I was going to say probably like almost like every study <laughs> right now in kink, uh, in the field of kink studies or BDSM studies, this one is longitudinal. We need to follow people over time. Uh, we need to get to figure out like, what leads to what uh, um, over time, right? How many people do experience some sort of medical complication or injury or how do their relationships, you know, and their identities change and their experiences with the healthcare system? Mm -hmm. How does that, you know, happen over time? And I think that that's really going to help us understand things much more deeply. So if you enroll in the study, then um, what we're hoping is that the, you know, every, after you do the initial um, eight surveys over you know, a certain period of time, you will then be contacted. Uh, we're going to stay in contact with you in a regular way. But then, you know, once a year, we'll send a, ask you to participate in another survey that will like allow us to follow up. Um, or allow us to explore another area of health. Uh, and so um, that's really going to be quite uh, powerful in us being able to understand more deeply the relationship between kink and health. So um, it's a big study. So, and, so when, yeah. and what we're talking about is not just like health, like injuries. We're also asking... And we're asking, so we're asking people who are involved in fetish. So if somebody's into, you know, just into high heels, right? Somebody who's into um, uh, cross-dressing, you know, they don't have to be involved in the kink community. Like, in fact, we really want to get to people who actually aren't in the kink community. They're easier to find. We want to get to people who are doing this sort of stuff in their homes, who don't actually might not even call themselves kinky, but they're doing these things, right? Or they're in a dynamic, in a relationship that they've never even walked in the door of a dungeon, right? And the questions that we're asking, we're, we're, we want to talk to folks who are pro-doms. We want to talk to people who are furries. We want to talk to people who are um, in the erotic hypnosis community. We want to get to people, anybody who does stuff that's out of the mainstream idea of what is sexual or erotic. Right. And so once you fill out these, you know, six or seven questions that are around um, whether you're eligible. Right. The questions that we're going to be asking are around consent. They're going to be around the behaviors you do. We're going to talk about, you know, the health care that you've gotten. 
We're going to be asking questions about um, discrimination. We're going to um, ask questions for folks who are um, people of color. We're going to be asking their experience of, of BDSM and kink. We're going to ask questions about people who are in power dynamic or, or erotic um, or um, uh, we're going through this thing these days about whether we're going to call it power dynamics, whether we're going to call it authority transfer, whatever we're going to call it these days. Um, we're going to ask questions about that. So it's, it's not just like health, but it's health related items. So these are all a part of health, of course. Um, we're going to ask people about um, reactions to have some questions about COVID. We have some questions about, um, you know, whether people have had problems over the last few years around, um, you know, food insecurity or around housing insecurity. Um, we're, so it, it's a really exhaustive sort of study. And that's why we broke it into a series of, of, of separate surveys, because if we asked everybody to sit down and do them at one time, people would probably, their heads would explode. But we also know that kinky people love to talk about sex. And so one of the reasons that we um, gave are giving people the opportunity to do surveys at their leisure, and we're going to keep giving them the links, is that you know some people just love to keep going and answer questions. And um, we have enough neurodiverse people and um, ADHD people in the community that sometimes they'll just keep going till they're done. So um, it's it's going to give us a lot of information that will hopefully help people. And I do want to highlight that we have as many questions as we do about physical health. We also have that many questions about mental health too. Mm -hmm. And, um, and questions about the relationship between kink and healing, uh, healing past trauma, healing or managing, um, different health conditions. Um, so we are definitely looking at the, the positive side, right? The upside of kink and health in addition to, you know, really trying to understand um, uh, s some of the more difficult parts of kink and health. Thank you both very much for that. Um, we're about to come to the end of the interview. Is there anything else either of you would like to mention or talk about? I feel like that last bit, definitely. Um, uh, I try to get across reasons I'm excited for it and the reasons why I think it is important for people to um, to participate. Mm -hmm. um, I I would say you know we'll probably start sometime in next year. You know, being able to report out. Uh, what some of the findings are. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that will be done in the academic literature, but we are also making sure to uh, do a lot of community um, presentations and outreach and getting the results back to everybody uh, in the community uh, without, um, uh, in essence, you know, keeping it bottled up yeah. uh, and only know, only for, you know, academics and uh, healthcare professionals. So we definitely will be doing that. So I would say look, look for, uh, start to see some of the results um, next year. We need thousands of people to do this survey. So that, you know, if this crosses people's desk, pass it on, pass it on to your friends, pass it to people around the world. Right. Um, if you can, if you can read English well enough um, 
to you know do a study in English, um, you can do it. Um, and um, and so that's the real help that we need is to just pass the link along for folks. Um, we've gotten such a you know we've gotten such response in uh, it's interesting Germany's been an amazing we've gotten so many responses from Germany we've gotten so many responses from the UK um, and we're getting um, responses from all over the world already but um, we we need thousands of people to fill this out because that's going to give us power that the, these findings will be seen as really um, valuable the more the more people we have the more statistical power the answers have. Um, and so, um, and it's going on for six months. So we're not closing the survey until the end of June, um, until June 20th. So um, the, the more people keep going and, and in encouraging other people to do, it's not going to end in a month. It's going to end in, in months from now. So just pass it along. And um, we really appreciate, Philip, you having an on us on here and hopefully we haven't just bombarded you with too much information not at all <laughs> um uh, and um thank you so much for the opportunity to talk um maybe another time we can have more of a chat rather than a you know talking too much and more of a conversation back and forth but um it means a lot to us for us to be here and talking about what we're doing Thank you. And thank you for everything that you two do as well. You know, for me, mental health and physical health are two very important subjects. And, um, you know, to find kind of like an atom claw and suddenly realize this was going on, I really wanted to kind of connect and try and make this more public to the community because I think it's incredibly important for us all. So thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to be interviewed by me or know someone who would, you can get in touch with me at the email contact at masterslavelifestyle.com. You can now support the podcast, website, and Master Slave community through Patreon membership and receive benefits such as early access to the podcast, exclusive video workshops, and more, along with my thanks for supporting me. There is now a free download to help you take the next steps in the Master Slave lifestyle, suitable for both beginners and those who want a full-time relationship. Check out the show notes for more information on both. And if you're interested in finding out more on the 24-7 Total Power Exchange lifestyle, go to the website at masterslavelifestyle.com for more information. Thank you all for listening.